Welcome to the Grace Community Church Podcast. We are grace for everyone, community for everyone, church for everyone. We hope that as you listen to the message from this past Sunday, that your heart is encouraged and you find yourself being drawn to Jesus wherever you're tuning in from. We are so grateful that you've joined us and pray that you'll be blessed as you listen to this week's message. Hey friends, the Bible has been used throughout the centuries to support some really beautiful acts of charity and liberation. From the founding of hospitals and shelters to care for the sick and the poor to the the infamous golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, there, there has been an immeasurable amount of good that's been done as people have taken what they see in scripture and applied it to their lives. People become more compassionate and loving and peaceful and kind. They, they see in the person of Jesus someone worth modeling their own life after. The, the Bible has been used for so much good, which is, which is why we read it, which is why we study, why we devote so much of our worship time to these scriptures. And we want to see that good in the world. We want to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we want our lives to be changed and the lives of those around us to be changed for the better. And the Bible helps us cast that vision for a more just, more peaceful, more loving world than the one we often find ourselves in. The Bible has been used to point us towards so much goodness. But sadly, the opposite is also true. The Bible has been co-opted at times. It's been twisted to support some of the darkest deeds in our history. The Crusades, the Inquisition, the slave trade, the Holocaust, all of these atrocities were propped up with passages from the same book that we study each week to point ourselves towards the kingdom of God. And the passage that we're going to look at today has been used by people, by anti-Semites throughout the years, from from Hitler to neo-Nazis who still gather today. And it's shocking to me that even the words of Jesus could be used to spread hatred and bigotry. But as we'll see in this passage, if we aren't careful with our reading and interpretation of the text, if we aren't listening to the Spirit to lead us into all truth, we can find ourselves having some misguided ideas about who God is and how he works. We have only a couple more weeks in our series, The Difficult Words of Jesus, where we're spending time with the puzzling phrases like, take up your cross and follow me, or let the dead bury their own dead, or hate your father and mother. And this week, Jesus calls the people the children of the devil when he says, you belong to your father, the devil. Your father, the devil. What in the world is Jesus getting at? Well. Let's find out. Come with me to John chapter 8. We're going to jump in at verse 42 to get to the meat of the discussion, and then we can pan out to some of the earlier verses to get the full context. As always, I'd encourage you to read along with us. If it's in your own Bible or on your Bible app, if you don't have a Bible app and you'd like one, I'd suggest downloading version. It's free um, on all platforms. It's got a bunch of different translations, lots of really great reading plans with, on scads of different topics that will help you spend some time uh, on a regular basis in scripture. And each week we put together an event in version 
uh, that has the relevant passages for the message so you don't have to jump around and find it on your own. So just click more if you have version. click more, go to events, and Grace should show up on your list of churches there. And the verses will uh, pop up all in a row for you there. They'll also be on the screen for you if you want to read along there as well. We're jumping in John 8, verse 42. It says, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any one of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. These are some pretty harsh words from Jesus. You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. You can't hear me because you don't belong to God. Well, who is the you in this accusation? Who is the them that Jesus is talking to? Understanding the context is critical, especially when we deal with difficult passages like these, because taken out of context, passages like this can wreak havoc. So let's go back to the beginning of the section, back to verse 12. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. So here Jesus is making one of his famous I am statements, where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And there are some in the crowd who challenge his claim. Verse 13 says the Pharisees spoke up. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they said, you're appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Now the Pharisees, they were a branch of the Jewish religious system that took matters of the law very seriously. They were known for being meticulous about pouring over the scriptures to ensure that they were obedient in every single aspect. And their opposition to Jesus comes directly out of the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 19 verse 15, it says, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or an offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So that's, they said, you're here, you're making this testimony, you're making this claim, and you're just one. Your testimony is invalid. It must be established by two or three witnesses. And Jesus' claim is a pretty bold one here. He, he's claiming that he's the light of the world, that if anybody follows him, they'll never walk in darkness. And so the teachers of the law have a bit of a right, I think, to be skeptical of this claim, this one who claims to be leading people into righteousness, often by leading them away from the power of the religious establishment, incidentally. And this is where the father language first comes into the picture. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. So Jesus backs up his claim to be the light of the world by saying, I know where I came from, 
and I came because the Father sent me. So I'm making this claim and the Father is the one who's backing me up. And so the, the witness who's adding to his testimony is his Father in heaven. And the Pharisees scoff at this. They're like, where is your Father? There's likely a double dig in this question. Because Jesus is first of all referring to God as his Father. And there's been some question of the whole story of Jesus' conception and the purity of his mother Mary. And it's also possible that Joseph, the man who raised Jesus, has already passed away. Because there's no mention of him in the Gospels once Jesus starts to preach. The only mention of any siblings are of Jesus' mother and some of his siblings. And so when Jesus entrusts Mary to his dear friend John while he's dying on the cross, it's likely because Mary has already been widowed. So the Pharisees are likely being a little unkind in even asking the question, where is your father? But they're also pointing out that there's no physical witness. There's no father standing there to back him up. But Jesus says, and my heavenly father is the one who backs me up. And so they ask that question, where is your father? You do not know me or my father is what Jesus replies. Notice that it's where is your father is a lowercase f, but Jesus responds with the capital, my father in heaven. He says, if you knew me, you'd know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So that last little detail lets you know that things are a little tense here. It says nobody seized him because his hour had not yet come. That meant that like tensions were running high. Even in this conversation at the beginning, they're arguing back and forth about who their father is and who Jesus' father is and that he's maybe this illegitimate son of Joseph the carpenter and he's making these wild statements of what being the light of the world. And the Pharisees are not, uh, not falling for any of it. They're agitated. And Jesus continues to push their buttons. He says, you don't know me and you don't know my father. He's saying that they are, they are indeed illegitimate children. If you knew me, you would know my father also, he says. He tells them, the Pharisees and the Jewish people that have gathered around him uh, to hear him teach that he's going away and where he's going, they cannot come. And so he's talking to people who've chosen, like they've not chosen to follow him. They've chosen to reject Jesus' words. And so in John 8, 27, it says, they did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I have done nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. So Jesus is talking about his Father in heaven. He's talking about, there's all of this Father language going on already at the beginning of this conversation, but it's very tense. They are not on the same side of this argument at all. And it, he starts to win some people over. It says, even as he spoke, many believed in him. People were beginning to understand that he might indeed be the Messiah. When you lift the Son of Man up, then you will understand. Well, the religious leaders, they're still, they're doubling down on the fact that Jesus is not who he claims to be. They see him as a threat, as an outsider who's leading people astray. And so Jesus says to the Jews who were beginning to believe in him, he says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I picture here Jesus like almost talking to two different groups in the same room. Like over here he's 
God, these people who are starting to believe, who are putting their faith in him, as John puts it in verse 30. And it's almost like he says to those people, like while the detractors and dissenters are sitting in the same same room with them, he's like, hey, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then suddenly there's, suddenly there's a grumbling from those who are in disagreement with these statements. They said they answered him. We are Abraham's descendants and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? This statement has always struck me a little odd because as Abraham's descendants, were they not slaves in Egypt? Like is not part of their history, is not the like founding of them as a nation sort of predicated on the deliverance from Egypt? They've never been slaves. I mean, them personally, maybe not, which is maybe why they're making this argument that this is the argument is getting very personal it is about them as individuals it's not even about them as representatives of a of a whole nation jesus goes on to clarify that they are slaves to sin it's true they are abraham's physical descendants but they're not walking in the same spirit that abraham did he says if the son sets you free you will be free indeed i know that you're abraham's descendants yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. I don't know if you can feel that tension, but it's escalating. The, the argument between these religious leaders and Jesus about their parentage and who, who they belong to and who they're listening to and whose way they're walking in. Jesus says, if you were really Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. Well, what did Abraham do? He walked by faith. He trusted God. He listened to the voice of God telling him to leave everything behind and go. That he walk in the ways of God. And these children of Abraham are trying to kill Jesus. That's not the way of Abraham. They are following a different father. And and yet again, they throw Jesus' parentage back in his face. We are not illegitimate children. And the implication there is like you. We're not illegitimate children. You are. The only father we have is God himself. And that's where we jumped in this morning. Jesus has been having this tit-for-tat verbal sparring match with the religious leaders that are out to kill him. These are the ones who are plotting his death. And it's to them that he says, you are doing your father's work. You are the children of the devil. You are, you belong to your father, the devil. So it's not the Jewish people as a whole. These are specific religious fanatics that thought they had God all figured out, that they were doing the work of God, and yet they are acting in direct opposition to him. Unfortunately, this still happens in our day and age. People who think they have God all figured out turn a blind eye to certain passages of scripture and run headlong in the direction that they want to go. The rise of Christian nationalism, particularly in our neighbors to the south, but increasingly creeping its way up here, shows us that we can claim to follow Jesus and miss the purposes of his kingdom. We can get so blinded by our own story, whether it's because of 
a desire for power or control or just for a desire for a better world, it gets twisted into something that no longer represents the way of Jesus. Incidentally, we don't really talk about politics in our pulpit because there is no political party, there is no system of government on earth that will save humanity. There is not one that will usher in the kingdom of God. It's Jesus and his kingdom that we've pledged allegiance to. And while I think that it's good that we have people who love and follow Jesus serving in political spheres, the key word there is serving. It is not about ruling. It is not about having the right guy in the right seat. I do not believe that any one party has the market cornered on kingdom values. And I think we've lost the plot if we think that that's the way of Jesus. I think we've missed the truth of the kingdom breaking in all over the place, usually in subversive ways and not from the places of power and prestige. The the kingdom is often grassroots. It's not beholden to an election or public opinion. The, The kingdom comes regardless of what color of tie the prime minister is wearing. But that's how subtly we can be led off course, where we can think that the kingdom comes when we elect the right person, or that the kingdom comes when, the, when certain laws are put in place. That the Pharisees had searched the scriptures to understand how to be faithful to God, and so they had come to an understanding of who the Messiah was going to be, and how that Messiah would come, and, and what that Messiah was going to accomplish. And when Jesus shows up, he doesn't meet the requirements that they had laid out. When the Messiah was standing right in front of them and telling them about the kingdom, they reject the message. They didn't just turn away, they actively engaged in trying to shut him down, even to the point of plotting his murder. How far off the mark do you have to be to condone murder in the name of God? Again, it still happens in our day and age. The number of people who argue for the slaughter of people based on religion. This is why Jesus called them the children of the devil. Because he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. These people who are willing to plot and kill. These people who are willing to believe these lies. There's no truth in him. He's the father of lies. Let's talk about the devil for just a second. Who is the devil? You might be surprised to learn that much of what we know or think we know about the devil comes from sources actually outside of scripture. Uh, sources like the Book of Wisdom, where it says that he's responsible for bringing death into the world, or, or the second book of Enoch that describes him as the one who's been cast out of heaven, uh, where we tie that to the reference of, you know, seeing the morning star falling from heaven. The Book of Jubilees describes the, the Satan, the Satan, as one who rules over a group of fallen angels. We, we have read all of these uh, st- stories from places outside of our Bible and then kind of read them back into our text. For instance, the Bible doesn't, or the, the devil doesn't technically show up in the Jewish Bible, what we refer to the Old Testament, like at all. Like there is someone called Hasatan, or more accurately, something called Satan, ha Satan, the Satan. Satan is actually a verb. Satan is actually a verb. It's not a name. Um, the verb is to accuse. And so when you put the definite article in front of it, you get the accuser or the adversary. And uh, first appearance uh, is probably in the story of Job where someone is in God's court, likely actually on God's payroll, 
who brings Job's case before God and accuses Job, Satan, accuses Job, Job of only following God for his own benefit. So that's how the story opens up. And you can read the rest of the story for all of the juicy details, but it's only later interpretations that turn that story into the like capital letter S, Satan, as if it was a name. The serpent in the garden at the beginning, there's no mention of Satan or the devil. That link comes later from church history of us reading that back into the story. Once we started looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, we started looking for the devil in the Old Testament as well. And so we found these references that like, oh, that that might be the, the accuser in the story of Job. That might be Satan. And that doesn't, because that doesn't say that the devil doesn't exist. You know, Verbal said it best, the greatest trick the, ever, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. But our understanding of who the devil or what the devil is has been influenced by a number of different sources over the centuries. And mm, the devil may not be easy to uncover in the Old Testament, but the devil sure does show up in the New Testament. In, in the temptation narrative, the devil comes to Jesus after 40 days in the wilderness to try and get Jesus to choose a path other than the one the Father was leading him on. What's interesting though is newer translations, probably more accurate translations, write the word the tempter rather than Satan. Anyway, Jesus clearly mentions that there is this devil, this father of lies in this passage, but his origin story is a little cloudy. And I think that might be on purpose, that he's more of a bit player than the main character, that this one who thwarts the, um, the, the purposes of God is not the all-powerful, he's not equal to Jesus, it's not an equal and opposing force that's at work here. Jesus mentions the accuser a couple of times in some of his parables. Paul, uh, and the writer of the epistles, pastoral epistles, mentions the devil, uh, so does Peter when he says, you know, be alert and of sober mind, the, uh, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. What do we know from scripture about the devil? Well, the de devil is a deceiver, a liar, which is why we may link to the story of the serpent in the garden, the one who deceived Adam and Eve. You know, though not explicitly named, the story does smell of an enemy that lies in order to turn God's people away from God's purposes. The devil is this accuser, an enemy, an adversary. Whether we're talking about a, a fallen angel, an evil spirit, or whether we're talking about evil personified, whether we're talking about the head of all the demonic realm, uh, those things are maybe up for debate. But Jesus warns us not to fall for the lies, not to listen to the lies. You belong to your father, the devil, and you carry out his murderous plot. You want to follow his desires because he is a liar. The point of this passage is we don't want to be the children of the devil. We don't want to be the ones who follow in his footsteps of murder and lies. The accusation he directs towards those were ones who were plotting murder. So how do we make sure that we aren't becoming children of the devil? How do we make sure that we aren't falling into those lies? Well, we focus our hearts on the truth. When Jesus was tempted, each time he responded with the truth. In Matthew 4, it says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He responds with the truth. That 
yes, I'm hungry. Yes, this would be a cheap trick that I could do that would prove that I am the son of God. But I am not going to live by your rules. I am going to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We read the passage about the devil prowling around like a, loring, a roaring lion. The very next verse in Peter says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, that you can resist the devil, knowing that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Resist him. Don't fall for the lies. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If we get back to the story where Jesus shares this with those religious leaders, how did they get so far off the path that they were plotting murder? What lie did they fall for? Did they forget or did they not know that God is love? Did they forget that by nursing their hatred, they'd be walking down a path of destruction? We could ask ourselves similar questions. What lies have we fallen for? Where has our understanding of God or the way that the world works been skewed? How might we turn to the Son and have him set us free? How might we dig into this truth? How might we resist the lies and lean into truth? The best place for us to start is with the words of Jesus, even difficult ones like these. Would we turn to those words of Jesus? Would we hide them in our hearts? Would we find ourselves living by them in our regular lives? Would we be leaning into the truth? Because Jesus says, if you do this, if you obey my teaching, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Oh God, God, we desperately want to know the truth, like capital T, truth. We, we want to have that truth set us free. In, in this age of overwhelming media saturation, we're constantly bombarded with opinions and positions and arguments and truth claims. Would you help us to see through the fog and, and drown out the noise to listen for your still small voice? Would you let us hear the Spirit leading us into all truth? May we turn our eyes to your words, where you told us to love our neighbors as ourselves, where you taught us to forgive one another as we've been forgiven, where you told us to lay down our lives instead of taking up arms. Would you, would you help us to hear that voice, to know that truth and resist the lies of the enemy? We know that we're sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Would you help us to walk in his ways and not fall for the lies of the evil one? That as we resist the devil, he would flee from us. Would you lead us into all truth? And would that truth set us free? For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for Church at Home. We're looking forward to the best summer yet here at Grace. We're, we're kicking off the summer with our barbecue on the 25th. Head over to the website for all of the summer activity fun. We'd, we'd love to see you out at one of the events that we're going to be having throughout the summer. On a personal note, uh, we're really looking forward to this next week as we'll be celebrating our daughter Emily as she and Austin get married on Sunday afternoon. And we're so grateful for this young couple and, and what God is doing in and through them. And so if I could ask you to pray a blessing over them this week, that would be really appreciated. If we can be praying with you or for you, if you want to connect, please drop us a line. We do pray regularly for all those who join us for church online, but if there's something specific we can pray for, we'd be honored to do so. We do hope you have an amazing week, and until we see you again, may the beauty of God be reflected in your eyes, the love of God be reflected in your hands, the wisdom of God be reflected in your words, and the knowledge of God flow from your heart that all might see and seeing believe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace.
to you.